Hello friends and welcome to the GMS Magazine podcast, The RPG Room. I am Paco Garcia and I'm going to say nothing else because Jim just told me that he's able and willing to open this episode for you. So Jim, hello. Hey, what's going on, Paco? That was fast. That yeah, was fast. That, that was the fastest intro ever I've done, ever. Yeah, you're usually long-winded and rambly and I appreciate it. I'm just detailed. I like and to... And now I'm ruining the, the concise nature of this introduction. Yes, thank you for that. I was making an effort. Anyway. So um, I want to open with some advice that you gave me once when you're reading one of my documents. And I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of our podcasts sound negative when they're actually an attempt to be constructive. Um, I often write when I'm writing advice documentation in any kind of game, things not to do. Don't do this. This game is not this. Um, what you're about to read is not what you're used to. Da, 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 da. There's so many bad habits in gaming that I feel that we spend, we have to spend a lot of time breaking people of old bad habits if they are ever to, I don't want to say grow or get better because that's, that's subjective, but certainly to evolve, mm -hmm. if you will. Yep. So today's post, or today's post, today's uh, podcast is about um, how to make better games, how to, how to make better sessions, how to, how do you get to a really good adventure? If you have an idea, where does the inspiration come from, and where do you, where do you go to to foment it into something better? Yes, is that fair? Yes, that that sounds exactly what I wanted to talk about. So, wow, what a coincidence! <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. We're on the same page, finally. Yeah, finally let's, let's, let's see how long it takes for us to ruin it. Um, so anyway, the reason why I was discussing, I was, um, I was thinking about doing this, is because um, yesterday I, I had an idea for a game that I think is absolutely brilliant. I read it, the one you posted on Facebook? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And I, you know, that idea came from just one sentence one sentence I heard in the 12 Monkeys TV series. In that series, there's a scene in which the uh, Cole, the, 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 the male protagonist, is explaining to Cassandra how, uh, how time travel works and how he has to stop, um, you know, this, uh, the army of the 12 Monkeys from spreading the virus so 7 billion people don't die. And she asks, so what happens once you um, do this and alter the timeline? It will be like you didn't exist or, or how is it going to be? Uh, and um, she asks, are you going to be dead? And he said, well, no, it's, it, when, when something like this happens, it's not dead. It's, it's something else. And, and that got me going and thinking, well, what else? what would it be if you are actually you're not dead because you haven't been born but you have been right. born somewhere so you your consciousness you yourself must have been somewhere in order to be able to be alive at some point so and that genetic material has already been produced right there's nothing you can do about the fact that at some point somebody made you exactly Right. So you're still existing. So I kind of like that idea because the back to the future model of you get erased from time is it works within the logic of back to the future. But at the same time, it I don't know, it creates all kinds of questions. And so I like what you're doing with it. I like what I read. Exactly. So it's that, that's what gave me going on for. Right. So what what does one do with one idea once is there? Because let's let's face it, the most difficult process of the whole creation is production is, is yes you know because having ideas i mean i don't know you but i could have an idea second but <laughs> obviously not all of them are going to be good ideas most of them in fact will be shit ideas yeah uh, let's talk about that for just two minutes okay right this idea that that i've got an idea so i should pitch it to a game company or i should pitch it to somebody or i need to turn it into something there are so many bad ideas out there so many and so many of them actually get published because the third-party market is easy to break into. I think what I what I would hope we get out of today is not only 
or should you sift through your ideas, but you really need to have a litmus for litmus test for whether or not an idea should should go to the next level. Is it time to start writing this idea down? Absolutely. And but how do you recognize it? Because once once you have an idea, I mean humans, we tend to be very attached to our own ideas. I mean we are attached yeah. to our opinions, imagining our ideas. Um, right. How do you recognize when an idea is, is bad? Because it's difficult. <sighs> Um, well, first of all, you, you can't you can't work on it by yourself. You have to. I mean, you have to show somebody at some point. You have everybody has friends online that they are not directly gaming with that they can send a, a, a blurb to. Here's a paragraph I wrote. What do you think? Should I take it to the next level? That is almost always where I start. I share something with somebody, and I pick somebody at random every time. By the way, I have so many friends on Facebook. That I'll just pick somebody at random and say, hey, you got a second? Can I send an idea to you your way? And by doing that, I get a lot of different kinds of feedback. How do you trust that feedback? Because let's face it, sometimes people will say your idea is not good when actually it is. Uh, that's a really great question because what I do is I listen to how they're presenting the feedback. Um, listen to how that's that doesn't work when you're reading text off of a screen but you know what I mean mm -hmm. if if somebody has if somebody has no I don't want to say filter but if somebody has no concept of how to give feedback what's useful as soon as I start getting useless feedback as soon as somebody starts to thumbprint the idea for themselves I know that their feedback is useless to me if somebody just says oh sounds like a great idea go with it that's also useless to me yes. I need to engage somebody and talk about the the theme, talk about the concept, talk about the point of conflict. Um, you you can't just presume that the feedback you're getting is good just because somebody else is giving it to you. You have to you have to trust people. You have to talk to people you trust. But even people you trust. I mean, let's um, let, let, let's go. Actually, you know what? Let's go on a practical example. Okay. Uh, let, let's go on a practical example. Let's assume. I have had an idea, uh, which actually I did. I did think about this uh, watching Arrow a few days ago. I have an idea for a for a um, a role playing game. In this role playing game, character creation, you know, to create your character, you roll ten d ten, and that is the age at which you have retired from being a superhero. And the game begins, your character begins facing life after you can no longer be a hero. You still have your superpowers, but you can no longer be a hero. What do you do with your life? So I could actually roll a hundred. I you can could roll a hundred. be hundred years old when I retire. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I already like that idea. Oh my goodness. Right? It was meant to be a I shit like idea. What's that? It was meant to be a shit idea. No, but I like it. I like it because it's so out of the box. And it reminds me of Twilight 2000 a little bit, the original edition, where your age determines how much experience you've had in life so far. So that determines how many points you get for skills, but it also affects how high your stats can be. Well, except that in this case, what you get, the older you are, Yes, you get more wisdom and, and you have more experience, but also you get a lot more um, mess in your life because you have longer to screw up your marriage, to neglect your children, <laughs> to not have a job, to have, um, you know, buildings collapsing on people that you haven't been able to save. Right. Enemies so let's, it's, so far it's a great idea, by the way, okay. but let's presume I hate it. Let's okay. just presume I hate it. I think it's <laughs> stupid. The first question out of my mouth is, what's, what's the conflict? What am I doing? What's the zeitgeist? Well, that's the thing. You, you, have to, you have to create a new life for yourself because everything you knew, it's gone. How much of my past am I role-playing? Um, only as much as it happens to um, come in, in, in front of you. You're, you're not role-playing your past. You're role-playing uh, with the consequences of your past. Okay. So, um, uh, so, yeah, I would have questions then about why my age is even relevant, right? And now I'm really getting nitpicky because I'm asking, I would start asking key questions like that. Why does it matter how old I am? Because it's I'm when your powers begin to fade. Right, but that's that, that could just be a thematic point, right? Absolutely. Uh, 
So we don't know exactly how old Batman is in Dark Knight Returns. We just know it's after his retirement and he's coming back. We don't know his specific age, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I read it. But it doesn't matter. We just know that he's old enough that his body's gotten creaky and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to have to come back but he comes back out of necessity well except that for role-playing game um purposes having your age can actually be a a, to to a mechanical advantage or can have some sort of um uh, influence in how your character develops because you know if if you are a hundred you're more more likely to have arthritis than if you are 75 or 65 and if you are 65 you are less likely to have 20 enemies than if you are 90. This What you're describing now feels like a video game, a first-person video game more than – or a comic book more than a game. Okay, so it's a shit idea. The deeper we get into this idea, the more it stops sounding like a game. Okay. Because now how do we get four people at the table to all role play together in your game? So after an hour of analysis, your game idea doesn't pass the role-playing game litmus test, right? Okay. So, okay, so that, that this is perfect because it's a good idea, but it's not a good idea for a role-playing game. Right, right. So what do we do with that idea now? How, how, how can people, you see, th- this is what I wanted to get to. Uh, I, I wanted to get to the point that asking questions about an idea, one can realize that, you know what, even if it is a nice idea, even if it is interesting, when you explore it, if you, if you take it further, it, it just is it's not good for the format at hand. You know, it could be a very good idea for a short story or for even for a novel. Right. But not necessarily for a game. Right. And I think medium is everything, right? If you just because you have an idea doesn't necessarily mean it translates into a game. And I get inspiration all the time from st- stimulus, artistic st- stimulus, not just from genre stimulus, but this artistic stimulus of watching a foreign film or reading a nonfiction piece or reading an article online, I'll get stimulus for an idea for a game, but mm-hmm. it takes a lot of work to bend that into a game idea. And sometimes it looks nothing like the original inspiration. You have to go through so many processes before you can turn an idea into a final product. And you have to ask so many questions. And that is something that I really have. I, I love having heard you say that, uh, how, how you bend the idea, how you do it. Right. What is what, what methods can people use to bend an idea effectively in order to turn it into something workable? Almost all Western storytelling is based on conflict. So there has to first be conflict. There has to be enough room for there to for four or five protagonists to be involved in this conflict. If you're making a role-playing game, right? Mm-hmm. If you're making a card game or board game or whatever, a, a different uh, criterion are required. But um, if you're if you're making a role-playing game, and I and I go over this. I had somebody that wanted to write a protocol for me, and I said, I, you cannot do this idea because how do you get all of these characters together together every single time there's an ensemble scene? You I. In order to write a protocol, I have to have all the characters on the same side of the conflict. And so the same thing is true of a regular role playing. The characters have to be on the same side of the conflict. If they're not, then they're, the conflict is with, with one another. And if it's not that, then it's not a role playing game. Mm, well, I mean, this, this possibly would be for another episode of the podcast, but, um, you know, there are some times when you're playing a game and the conflict, the characters are not on the same side of the conflict. Right, uh, but those, those campaigns don't last long. Um, I'm not sure about that. I, I, Vamp- I have, Vampire's the exception, but Cthulhu, how long would Cthulhu last if players were on different sides of the conflict? How long does D&D last if players are on different sides of the conflict well, the party I, disintegrates i think the campaign would last i think the character wouldn't because there would be either right let, let's say that you have a necromancer who wants to get the jewel 
uh, because that's going to allow him to raise more dead people. And you have the Paladin that wants to destroy the jewel. Now they're both together in the same venture because they both want to find the jewel. But what happens after that? What happens once they find it is a different matter altogether. So they're right, not on the same right. side of the conflict. They're in opposite sides of the conflict, but they have common interests. And I think that's right. what really matters, the amount of common interests one has in an adventure, not necessarily the conflict between them. I, yes, they are, well, so long as they're fighting to go get the jewel, they're on the same side of the conflict. As soon as they get the jewel, they're not on the same side of conflict. And that's when both of their participation on equal footing ends. And so, while I think it's great, what you just described is great, one of those players is going to lose and they're not going to be happy. Well, unless one of those players decides to stop being a moron and compromises. Right. Or, or both of them. Right, but you, now they're on the same side of the conflict. Well, absolutely. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, that being on, on, on the opposite side of the conflict is something that the GM can use, and even the players can use, to actually add interest to, to the I, I agree, but you're talking about super advanced, high-quality, high, high high-end role-playing, right? You're, you're, you're not talking about somebody just producing an adventure for the night. I, I, I don't know that that works for every single group. No, and hopefully not, people not. that listen to us, because they have to put up with our crap, know that we don't do the bad end of role-playing, so no, true. maybe they do like this advice. Hopefully, hopefully. So um, once that, uh, that idea has been bent, so let, let's say, for example, let, let's go back to my idea, which we have already acknowledged and agreed is not a good idea for a role-playing game. But let's let's go right. with that idea for a bit and say that the the way that um, all characters are going to be in the same place at the same time, and the reason why, is because they used to be members of the same superhero team. Great. And therefore, you know, they, they share some common enemies or uh, they share the families. And, you know, um, Iron Man is Thor's son's godfather and Captain America, you know, at the end of the day, he did have that song with Black Widow because, you know, they had a fling at some point when they thought they weren't going to be alive much longer. And they were. <laughs> That's great. Oh, see, I want to role play that scene, though. I want right. to role play that scene where they're trapped at the this elevator at the bottom of the exploding helicarrier carrier and uh... exactly, you know, well, that, that sort of thing. So that that's how we go over now. That idea, okay, we've managed to, we know it's crap, but we've managed to turn it into an idea that could become a role-playing game. Now, what? Where does the the inspiration, where does the the tool set to actually develop that idea and make it into a playable adventure or a playable game? Um, I think one of the mistakes everybody makes is they always start writing at the beginning with this stuff they'll they'll write the plot first and then they'll just write an order and i don't think that you can do that all the time most of the time in fact you can't you need to know what your end game is going to be you don't get to write the finale right the players get to write the finale but you need to know what the end game of your story is so the questions i would start asking is this really sounds like a role-playing game where we're playing in the past and we're trying to find out the mistakes that we made in our flashbacks Right, we're trying to learn from it. I don't know if you've heard heard of a role playing game called Shakespeare's Daughter. I've it, heard of it. I haven't. I haven't read it. It, I actually like it a lot, and I hate it a lot at the same time. Again, it's it's picky uni stuff that I don't like about it, but it's a really smart game about playing in flashbacks or trying to find out what went wrong. Um, there's so many things I would have done differently if I had written it, but it's a really good model for how to write uh, an indie role playing game. And I think there's something to be said for your idea now where how much of it do we play in the present? How much do we, we play in the past? Because I want to know about the mistakes that were made and why you're, you're still holding on to them. So in order to know why you're holding on to them, I need to see what caused them in the first place. So I think your role-playing game works if it's half and half. So that would be my feedback now at this point in your development. Okay. Is it going to be a game where I can play in the past or am I only playing in the present? I would say you're only playing in the present because what you're going to be facing, the conflict you're going to be facing, again, is it's going to be the consequences of your past. Interesting. Okay. But other, other and, consequences that you can no longer face with your superpowers because your superpowers are fading. You know, you're now 
Uh, you might be a little bit stronger than the average human, but you're older. You are not as strong as you used to be. And, right. and thus you have to think differently. Well, if I'm living in the present, then I want to see maybe some charts where I find out about my past a little bit so that there's conflicts that the GM, if there is a GM in this game, that mm -hmm. the GM can draw upon to create adventures specifically for my character or the other characters at the table. So I'm going to want to see that. Oh, and for the record, you know, the conflict might be that you actually now have to face the fact that your daughter is a, dr is a drug addict because you haven't been there for her right. uh, and, and got with the bad crowd. And <coughs> um, maybe your husband has been with a number of women uh, because you weren't there when he needed you. Right. You know, that it, it is that kind of consequences that we're going to be facing, not necessarily uh, Loki 2.0, who's coming from Valhalla because, you know, he's kind of fancy the walk in the park. One of the things that um, Kel Myers and I were working on a sci-fi game for a while. And one of the things that I said before we started working on the world or anything else is let's write the first adventure just so we know what we want an adventure to look like for this game. Mm -hmm. Um and I had never attempted to write in that manner before, but it really, really helped because it, it showed me that I didn't need 50 different alien races in order to play this game the way that I wanted to play it. It wasn't about that. This was a, a different kind of sci-fi game that was a little more low-tech and grungy, not some post-human intergalactic exploration game. And so I would ask you now, in this idea, in this model of this game that you're suggesting, what does an adventure look like? What what will I be doing in adventure? You should probably write an outline for one, just so we know now what's going to happen. That would be the next step. And you know, I really love you saying that because I am absolutely bored and tired, witless, of reading role-playing games that you finish reading the the setting, the mechanics, the everything, and then you think. But what do I do with this? Oh, yeah. Uh, we could do a whole episode about how much that sucks. Yeah. I, it, it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. I So many role-playing games, they just assume that you're going to go on an adventure with it, just like D&D. And then I ask the question, well, why aren't I playing D&D instead of your game? What what makes your game different than D&D? Exactly. Uh, and let's face it, D&D is so easy to play because... You know, you just need a dungeon and some goblins, and you hit things, and that's it. Right. No, right. seriously, seriously, it, it it is what most people do with D and D. That's why there are so few truly good adventures, and that's why so many people think that D and D or Pathfinder are not true role playing games because you can you can get an adventure literally, and I kid you not, literally by rolling some dice. There are dice out there. Mm -hmm. that create, as you roll them, it creates a dungeon for you. There's another die that will give you the monster, and there's another die that will give you a trap. Right. So every, right. Time, I, yeah. every time the characters take a step forward, you just roll the die and say, oh, now you are in front of a T-junction. Now let me roll and find out if there is a monster here. Boom. Actually, no, there's no monster. You're going to take left, you're going to take right. Take right. Oh, there's a corner here. Let me see. There's a monster. Actually, no, there's a trap. You fall down the trap. You know, that is how simple it is to do an adventure for Pathfinder or D&D. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I think Pathfinder is even easier to write an adventure for because they're, the, the way they've done their their pathway or whatever they're called adventures there's no choices to make you just go from point a to point b and if you do a dungeon if you do it without any forks in the hallways if it's just one room after one room, you've also eliminated choice once the once they're at the, the gates of the dungeon but you know um, at least uh, and, and this is uh, after having played a couple of those adventure paths you know the um, adventure paths that's what they're uh, called yeah they do it very well so the illusion of choice is very much there right uh, and i i like that because it feels like uh you know in uh, uh the dragonlands the first dragonlands adventures that the, the the novels were based on right uh you were basically playing the novel yes so you knew where you had to do you knew where you had to go and it's still which is bit... ironic because the novels felt like somebody was on an adventure exactly 
Uh, but, well, I think that's because they went the, one, the, the other way around. You know, the, you, the, the, the books came out of the adventures, not the other way around. Right. But you felt like you were actually playing the novel. And that was, for me at least, what really, really good fun. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with playing in that way, that's, if that's what you like. But uh, you have to be very good at giving the illusion of choice, which is not something that many people can do well. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, I, I'm not really judging if people want to sit down and play Pathfinder that way. That's that's their prerogative. But for me, if there's no choice, even if there, the illusion of choice is there and there isn't, no, isn't a choice, I'm going to be frustrated because I'll probably see right through that. And I have to feel as though what I'm deciding has impact. Well, yeah, and, um, and you know, this is advice for people out there. If you get to a point you're doing an adventure you know and you have this amazing idea and you get to the point where you think you know i'm not going to go into that room does that matter mm-hmm. if it does matter then that's not a choice you're not giving people a choice i, I think right. you have to be able to say no i don't want to do this at whatever point and uh, still be able to advance with the quest whatever the quest it is or right. otherwise you're just eliminating choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other, yeah, otherwise you're just going through the process, you might as well wa- be watching TV. Correct. Or, yeah, Correct. exactly. And, and again, we come back to medium, right? If you, if, you're, if you have this inspiration that you want to do this superhero game that you're suggesting, um, and you get to the point in the game where there's no choices for the players to make, you're, you're not making a game anymore, you're making some other kind of inf- entertainment for them. Yeah, it's just a story that you happen right. to tell as you go along. So yeah. um, once we have, you know, because we, we have already spoken about um, an idea can come from absolutely anything, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, not every idea is, is a good one. Uh, and uh, asking questions, it's the, pretty much the only means to actually find out if the idea can be um, workable for the medium at hand. And uh, you have yeah. to, sometimes you have to bend your ideas in order to make them workable. The idea as it comes from out of the box is not good enough, but changing things here and there, it might make it mediocre enough to be worth it. When I make a new game, I'll sit down and I'll write a mission statement or a design goal for the game, mm-hmm. and I'll try to adhere to it as long as I can. But when it's obvious I can't adhere to this objective anymore, I, I either throw it away or I change it. And yeah, you have to be flexible. You have to be. Creativity is about making choices and being flexible. It's about finding a way to work with your original concept and making it approachable. Now, actually, I'm going to go into those two words that you just said there, original and approachable. Mm -hmm. What should take precedence, originality or approachability? Uh, Well... I mean, I think it's pretty obvious how I feel. I feel that originality should come first only because I believe that you can't learn anything by doing the same thing over and over again. You learn by doing something different. You learn by play. The idea of playing and learning from playing is that the first time you engage with a game, it's new. The first time you sat down and you played Monopoly, it was a new concept to you. There's nothing you can do about that. It was a new concept the first time you played it. It's a horrible concept now as an adult. Mm. But as a child, is oh, I rolled dice and I move around a board. When you're six or seven or whatever, that's a new concept for you. Probably kids play much younger now than they did when I was growing up. But that being exposed to Monopoly was that was my first game, and I, I learned so much about that what it is that I like eventually ended up doing because I sat down and I played Monopoly and I, I watched this interaction and, you know, I didn't know that the choices that I was making mattered, but by the end of the game, I realized that I'd lost and that there's probably better ways to do this if I want to get good at it. You, you actually finished the Monopoly game? Monopoly? <laughs> I think I did. I mean, I, w- I was six or seven. I don't know. We, was... we always ended up fighting much, much before we got anywhere near the end of the game. I, I hate um, Monopoly with a passion. Yeah, I, I was, uh, believe it or not, I was a nice little kid. So, um, yeah, I was probably well behaved the first time I played it. Oh, I hated it. Anyway, so um, we've also said, uh, and, and I, I love this, um, 
don't write the game first. Write the adventure first. If you cannot go adventuring yeah. in your game, whatever adventuring means, don't write your game because it's going to be a waste of time. Yeah. And I don't want well, yeah, I, you got to find out again. We're we're back to what's the point of conflict? What's the what is it that you want people doing? What's the experience you want them getting out of this game, and or this adventure? If you're just running it, if you're just writing it for you and your group, then that's fine. You you know you, that you can run it and control it, and you can respond to their proclivities. But if you're actually going to publish an adventure or publish a game. You you can only put so much of yourself into the book, and you have to give people the tools to play it properly. And we've also spoken about uh, originality versus approachability. Right. And I, I think on on that side, as much as I love um, originality, I don't think people give that much of a shit about it. To be perfectly honest. Yeah, I think ninety percent of gamers don't. You're right. I, Veneer is useless in gaming, to be honest, and we should probably have a podcast about that, um, talking about veneer. But I, I think the general populace just wants to play what they're comfortable with, and so approachability for most people is more important than originality. But you know, I th you, you say veneer is useless. I think veneer is actually extremely useful for the development. You think it is? I think that most people treat a game the same way, regardless of what the veneer is. Well, no, but that's a different that, that's a different con context. But what I mean is, for example, um, and this is something that might upset some people, um, tough. But we <laughs> we agreed a while ago that steampunk is a veneer, it's not a genre. Yes, correct. Okay? So it is very useful. It might not be um, conducive to to actually great quality, <clears throat> but it is very useful to have steampunk in there uh, because you say, "Oh, I have an idea for a superhero game in Victoria." I wasn't thinking superhero so much. I've, I've watched uh, I've, I've watched the three uh, seasons of Arrow in the last uh, five days. So I'm I'm all superheroed up. Uh, in in um, Victorian times, and therefore I'm going to add the veneer of steampunk. Uh, to make the superheroic thing a little bit, uh, you know, more, uh, you can be this steampunk kind of vigilante instead of having superpowers. So you add the veneer. That is a useful veneer to add. Mm, I don't think so, but okay. No, well, what? Uh, please elaborate. Um. So I'm gonna I'm gonna really upset all the D and D purists out there. You think any of Do you think any of every, us listen to us? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, they probably don't. Every edition of D&D &D is exactly the same. And that is a dangerous thing to say. But at the end of the day, here is why all the editions of D&D &D are the same. You roll a D20 and you wait for the GM to tell you what that D20 means. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what edition you're playing. That's D&D. &D. You have all this math that leads up to rolling that D20 based on the edition you're playing. And so the math of the game is different based on the edition you're playing. But you roll a d20 and you wait for the GM to interpret that die roll. Yeah. And so the veneer of any edition of D&D, you could be playing Eberron, you could be playing Ravenloft, you could be playing this crazy Victorian um, superhero thing that you're talking about, you could be playing Dark Sun. At the end of the day, somebody's rolling a die and the GM is telling them what it means. And until your game utilizes the veneer in a way that until that veneer impacts the game in a way that is that makes that process different it's all the same uh, yes but that doesn't stop to stop it from being useful to get the the game you want to get whether whether it is um uh how how am i saying this whether it actually uh it's conducive to producing something new or not is a different matter. When I say it is useful, it means that it, it makes for an easy way in order to achieve something. That, that, does that make sense? Uh, fantasy, medieval fantasy. You apply Tolkien's veneer and that's it. You get presto, you get a medieval fantasy world. Right. Um, science fiction, you apply a Star Trek veneer and presto, you have a science fiction uh, game or a science fiction setting just by applying one veneer. That, that's what I mean with it being useful. It's, it's, it's a good tool to actually help you advance whatever it is you're creating. Whether that is then good or not, that's a different matter altogether, but it, it can be useful to create product.
putting the Star Trek thing aside, because I think I've written a ton about why sci-fi sucks in role-playing games. Um, I think, in general, everybody takes... Fate is a perfect example of people taking the logic of adventuring, taking the the taking the structure of an adventuring game and just putting a new mechanic on it, slapping any veneer they want on it because that's what fate is good at. Mm -hmm. And it's still always the same game. Fate is always investigators and pulp heroes going and saving the day. That is fate. If you're playing D and D you're high fantasy adventurers going and saving the day, you're rolling different kind of dice to save the day. If your veneer is is somehow not about saving the day, then great. Then you've got a different structure underneath all of that flash. But if every car in the world was made by Volkswagen and they just put a different body on the outside, people would believe they'd bought a different car. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's still a Volkswagen underneath. And I think that's what 90% of role-playing is is that people put a new veneer on it and they think they've got a new game, but I'm still sitting at the table waiting for my turn to save the day. Do you think that that happens and people are willing to accept that because there isn't really a, an RPG culture yet or because RPGers, we just like escapism so much that we don't really care where we go as long as we can escape? <laughs> I think that question is a whole nother episode. To be honest. Well, give me a succinct answer. A succinct answer yeah. is that, yeah, we're so attached to the how we felt when we were 14, when we first played a role-playing game, that we're trying to recapture that moment every single time. It's that high. You're going after that first high you had. It's like your first toke of marijuana, your first cocaine snort, your first beer, your first time playing role-playing games you're going after that high every single time you sit down. And I think that that's why veneer doesn't matter. I think if you really want to experience something new when you play a game, you're not looking at the veneer, you're looking at the structure or you're looking at what the actual, how the experience is different. And so when you suggest this superhero game about playing old people, I want to see... I want to see the flashback version that I was describing. I don't want to see the version that you've been pitching to me. Okay, fair enough. So you see, so we we've have now the, we have bent the idea, or at least we've got directions to bend the idea um, towards, so, so it can become a little bit better. Yeah, and I think that's a little serendipitous, right? Because we actually did no prep today. No, not at all. So for us to come back to that in a circular fashion, I, I think that's... That's serendipitous. Yeah, that's fun. It's very good fun. Okay, and now um, we get to the point where, you know, we, we have the idea, we're going to do it. Now it's when the, the truly horrific task begins, and this is where most ideas die. You have to take it and turn it into a written, workable piece of work. How the hell do you do that? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's that's the the real work, and that's that's why there's thousands of advice books out there on how to write, because it depends on who's going to see it. If you're just writing this as an adventure for your group, then just write your notes as an outline, get all your ideas on paper, you know, write uh, alternatives for yourself so you can think on the fly in case the the players go awry. What I have always done in the past whenever I want to start a new D&D campaign is I'll write up a list of laws and rules for the campaign that I can't violate. I'll make up a handful of NPCs and I'll just go and I'll, I'll react to what the players are doing because that's how I like to GM in a sandbox. Um, but I, a lot of people need more control and they need more prep. And I, I think you as a game master, whoever you are, um, you know what your strengths are as a game master and you should you should write you should write against those strengths right you should write to cover the things that you can't do on the fly at the table you know i'm, I'm going to go one step further and i would say you don't need to write anything just go ahead and run the game just just take your friends around the table and and and, and fuck everything just 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 start playing 
Uh, start playing the adventure. Don't don't write anything down. Just start playing the adventure, and see how hard or how easy that is for you to to run or to play, because that's going to give you an idea as to what sort of um, areas people are going to be struggling with and what sort of areas people are going to be more driven towards. So you may find out that you end up fighting more often than not or that you actually end up investigating more often than not. And, and that will give you a good idea as to where to concentrate and where to focus your writing. That's actually pretty good advice. I think that people, I, I, my fear there is that people would just fall into their old habits because that's easier to do. Um, but if you really are trying to create an original way of doing things, you really, you need to test it with people you haven't played be with before. Mm. Right? You need to test it at a convention. You need to to um, write it up and hand it to somebody else and see what they do with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all kinds of ways to test an idea um, to see if it works. Yeah. I, I think if you sit down with your group and they're used to just killing things, they're just gonna try to kill things again with your new idea, whether or not that was your intention. Yeah, but then you may find that it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. So, or at least it doesn't work with with that group, the, with that group, with that environment you're in. Yeah. So, and, and also, I don't know if this would work for you, but I, I would also say a good way to start is actually going go to uh, the most comprehensive RPG you have, and copy the structure. Find out what what structure is there. What what chapters are there? What's in every chapter? And find right. out, do you need this chapter? Do you need this section in the chapter? Right. And how are you going to arrange that? The hardest part, I will say, for me, when I'm writing a new game, or because I don't really write adventures anymore, when I'm writing a new game is, what did I forget to put in? What, because I'm writing a new idea, what kind of advice do I need to include that I'm forgetting to include? Because I've sat down, I'm, I'm publishing Praxis here in five days, my Kickstarter ends, and in five days this game comes out, and I've tested it all month long, and every time I sit down and play, people are coming up with new problems that I need to address in the rules that I didn't consider. And there's, that's really where you, you have, I think, all right, let me take a step back. I think one of the things that I would also say as advice to people is when you are running it, don't try to be a control freak, let go of the wheel and see where it goes and then be ready to address that in your next iteration of whatever it is that you're writing. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. I think this is something that people should consider quite seriously. And is that, um, and we've said this a number of times, I believe, but uh, we, people need to remember that the game, once it's out there, once you share with anybody else, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs yeah. to your players. And if you're right. not prepared to let your players change, reshape, invent, create and destroy things within your game, don't bother. Seriously, uh, don't bother. I got to tell a story because uh, this happened this just this past weekend when I was at a game convention. Um, I, I got really pissed and I, I, I lost my patience with a player. He's somebody I know and it was one of those situations where he was doing the same thing he always does in a game, which is over explain everything when it's his turn to do a scene. It was a jamless game. And normally when I'm running any of my protocols or any of my practice games and I'm with even people I know or strangers, I just let them go. I don't correct them when they're doing something wrong in a scene. They're adults. They're having fun. Why would I impose artificial rules to counteract their fun? But there we were, we were playing late on a Saturday night and it was scene after scene after scene just over explaining everything. All of this, this exposition time that no other player at the table was taking with the game. Nobody else was taking that much time. And I eventually just called him out and I said, no, that's not what this kind of scene does. And I, I did it for a reason because I got, I got really tired of, of him trying to dominate the story. Everybody should be sharing in the story. And if one player is is trying to control and funnel where the conclusion's going to be, then you've got that. I don't even want to say he's an alpha gamer because he's not. He's not an alpha gamer. You get that when you're playing board games a lot where the alpha gamer is trying to drive the game in a certain direction. He's just one of those people that doesn't know when when enough is enough. 
And I, I think, um, I think it's important to know that those kind of people are going to be at the table. There's always going to be somebody that's a detractive force. Um, and your games can't address and solve all those problems. So at some point, you can only give so much advice, you can only give so many rules, you can only write so much material, and other players have to have to let it, they have to take hold of what it is that you've made and make it their own. Now, how important is it to have uh, an outline and to follow it? I don't write with an outline anymore, really. Um, I think if you're a fledgling writer, it's absolutely imperative. I think once you know what you're doing, I've been doing this 20 years now, so I just start going. And I'll go back to an outline once I've got 100 pages under my belt and then say, okay, what order does this really need to go in? But um, your outline is going to be different every time you write a book based on what you value the most because you front load with your best information, right? A lot of people don't finish reading the entire rule book. That's the truth. Yes. So, you know, put your best material at the front and then put your last three most important pieces of information at the end because that's what people are going to remember. And you know, something that we haven't discussed at all, and I think, um, wow, we've been recording for 40 odd minutes already. Uh, but something that we haven't discussed at all is how do you cope with writer's block what happens when you just can't be bothered you don't know where, where you're going with this and you don't know what to do with this uh, game once you've written 13,000 words what are you going to do you're at 13,000 words and you don't know what to do mm -hmm. and you have writer's block I, I don't get writer's block anymore I think it's probably because it's just a process for me now um, but I, I think some people need to take a break I think some people need to show it to somebody else I think you need to at some point get somebody else involved. Um, you need to work on something else, right? If you have writer's block, find something else to do and stop thinking about the book. Because if you really are love it and are passionate about it, it's going to come back to you. The, the ideas are going to come back to you. I, I am at home almost all day. And if I go out for just five minutes, as soon as I'm out the door, I've got new ideas for the book that I've been working on and I have to sketch them down on a pad of paper. So for me, just getting away from it for five minutes is enough. But some people, they may need more time. And I know stories of writers in the industry. I won't name names, but, you know, they had to be pulled off of things for weeks before they could get back to work on it. And, and you know, one thing that I would say to, to people is, and there is nothing wrong with it. No, there isn't, unless you have a deadline. Absolutely. I mean, Yeah. But if you're writing for yourself or you're writing for your friends or you're just writing because you want to eventually make a game or an adventure, nobody – if it's your first one, you don't, you'll never have a deadline. I promise you. Your first game will never have a deadline. In fact, you know what? I would say your first game will probably never be finished. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. If it, There's a concept in filmmaking called cutting your cherries. I don't know if – people in the gaming industry have heard it or not but it's the idea that you've made a movie and you filmed all these scenes and you've got to get the movie now under a certain amount of time and you have to cut your cherries which is removing the scenes that you like but that aren't necessarily imperative to the material and I think that that concept in gaming um, you know those are the chapters and the characters and the monsters that you've put in there because they're great ideas to you, but that the players just don't need. And I'm staring at my own document right now, you know, thinking that I could probably remove this whole section on NPCs and it, the game, the book would be just fine. Nobody would even notice that it was missing. Which is fair enough. Right, I think we should, you know, um, we should say goodbye because we've been at it for a very long time now. And people, if they're not already asleep, they, they should be about, you know, the, the end of their tether. Yeah, I, yeah. And you know, we haven't disagreed once. We haven't. We haven't. That's terrible. I've been in a good mood lately. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you who about Who are that. you? What have so, you done with Jim? Should I tell this story? You, yeah. You read what happened, right? You read what happened at the convention, right? I, I, I should I tell this story on here? Uh, if you want. I, I, I know that you um, lost your temper. Yeah, I did. I did. And I don't know. I've been feeling better since it happened. Well, catharsis, you know, anger, well, catharsis certainly. comes through anger sometimes. 
Yeah, yeah. It was a long time coming, right? And I didn't expect it. I didn't expect to see this person at the show. And I was ready to just walk away. Um, and I tried to be I tried to be nice. Paco, you're not going to believe it. I actually extended my hand and I tried to be nice. And the person in question was a smarmy jerk. Mm-hmm. I'll be you know, be nice again. They were a smarmy jerk and I just started walking away and then they had to be a smart ass. And that's when I lost it. And so I was I was upset for a little while about it, but I've been really calm the last week and a half. Well, maybe you should get mad at people more often and be calmer. You, you know, get your your zen through anger. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I have a really bad temper, so I don't like when I get that loud and that angry. And I certainly don't like getting mad at people that I like. So this was an opportunity to get mad at somebody that I don't like, <laughs> and there were really no consequences. So that was just fantastic. Well, good on you. So. Yeah, I think that's one reason why we didn't. I mean, I you can hear it in my voice. I'm not tense or angry or no. anything. No, no, that's why I was wondering. Who so, are you? What you done with Jim? Yeah. So, uh, listeners, if anybody's listening, I I've never said the word listeners while we've done this. So, in all the times we've recorded, and I think we're on our fiftieth one of these. Um, if you're listening, I hope you appreciate the fact that you got to hear that story because I wasn't really intending to share it. Well, there you go. Now they are more your friends than your listeners. Oh. oh, well, yeah, they're okay. <laughs> Some of them. There's there's still a barrier between me and the rest of the world of I don't want to have feelings. But yes, well, we're closer than we were. Good. Right, uh, friends, listeners, uh, humans and other species, thank you for being there. It is um, very much appreciated. Uh, you know, for once, I really hope that we've said something that people will find useful. Because normally I don't care if we say something useful or not. I just want to have a chat with you. Um, but today it, w- it would be quite nice if it was actually a useful show. Uh, yeah, I want to point out that Paco and I do not talk except on the show. We have nothing to do with each other no, well, unless we're here. That's not strictly true. That's not true at all. No, I was just trying to... Yeah, I'd be a jerk. Yeah. Asshole. Uh, so anyway... <laughs> Listeners, thank you. Thank you for being there. Uh, please do find us in Twitter. I am at GMS Magazine. And I'm at postworldgames.com and on Twitter and everywhere else. Yeah, and you can find us as well, uh, you know, by our names in Facebook or whatever and say hi, uh, which would be very nice indeed. And until next time, um, keep your GM-less games going. That's the shittiest outro I have possibly come up with. Which is funny because you just had a really short intro. Yeah, but it wasn't a bad intro, but this outro is shitty, and I don't know how to repair it now. Uh, you want to re-record it? No, no, I just, I, I will just live with my shame. Um, listeners, goodbye. <laughs>